Well, as we turn our attention now to our teaching time, we're in our series in Advent. I'm going to invite my friend Bonnie to go ahead and come, and she's going to read the scriptures for us this morning as we move toward our teaching. This is the word of the Lord. I have heard what the prophets who prophesy a lie in my name have said. I had a dream. I had a dream. How long will this continue in the minds of the prophets prophesying lies, prophets of the deceit of their own minds through their dreams that they tell one another? They plan to cause my people to forget my name as their fathers forgot my name through Baal worship. The prophet who has only a dream should recount the dream But the one who has my word should speak my word truthfully, for what is a straw compared to grain? This is the Lord's declaration. Is not my word like fire? This is the Lord's declaration. And like a hammer that pulverizes rock? Therefore, take note, I am against the prophets, the Lord's declaration, who steal my words from each other. Thanks, Bonnie. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you guys. If you're new or we've not yet met, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors of Sound City Bible Church, and uh, we are in our Advent series. This is week three of Advent. Advent is a word that means the arrival. This is a season of longing for the arrival and the coming of the Messiah. When we look back on Christmas, that's the first Advent, the first arrival of our Messiah. And now we look forward with longing to the return of our Messiah. And this year, for Advent, we've focused in on this phrase, how long? How long, O oh Lord? And in week one, we looked at how long will I struggle with the sins and idols of my own heart, kind of an individual look. And then last week, we looked at how long will there be injustice uh, in the society that we live in. And, and today, we're going to take a look at uh, the, the, the church, the people of God, the kingdom of God. And as you may have heard from our reading here today, that even the prophets, uh, there are words that come from the Lord where he is against the prophets. He is against the leaders, the spiritual leaders, for not leading well, for not caring and not shepherding well. A couple of years ago, some members of the church gave me this mug, and you probably can't see it in the room or online. It just says, world's okayest pastor. And while some pastors maybe would be offended by such a thing, I love it. And uh, first of all, uh, all of us need reminders to be humble. Second of all, Uh, I feel like this just helps set expectations. If you happen to be new, uh, you know, we've had a bunch of new people join our church recently, both here in person as well as even online. That's kind of a new thing for me to wrap my brain around. People emailing in, say, hey, I've been joining online. We're about, somebody, we're about to move to the Seattle area. I've been watching your guys' live stream. We plan on coming there as soon as we move there. And uh, just a, a strange thing. But we endeavor to point people to Jesus. We as pastors do endeavor to love and serve people well, but we certainly do not do it perfectly at Sound City Bible Church. And I really thank those of you who've been around for a while for not saying amen too loudly. So uh, with that said, I'm going to invite you to pray. There will be some heaviness to this topic uh, again this week, but there is some serious hope of the gospel to be able to see here today as well. So will you pray with me? Lord, will you help me to teach that which is in line with the good shepherd, Jesus. I want to serve these people well, and I can only do that, Holy Spirit, if you help me and speak through me. 
So guide my words and guard my speech. Lord, for all of us, we all want, Holy Spirit, you to come in and soften us, to break up the hardened ground of our hearts, that we might receive the truth of your word and that we might look at the church, the people of God, the way that you see us, Lord Jesus, like a beloved bride, even with all of our faults and our flaws, a beloved bride, loved by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I would like to say something that pastors probably shouldn't say. Some of the other pastors in the room are getting real nervous right now. Okay, some days I just don't want to be a Christian. Some days. And for me, it really rarely, if ever, ever has to do with Jesus or believing in God or believing in the truth of the scripture. I mean, I believe deep down in my bones that Jesus died for me. He's my savior. I really, really believe that he rose from the dead on the third day, like just the the most mind-blowing fact in human history. I really believe all of that. Where, Where I have those days where I don't want to be a Christian really has a lot more to do with the church. Go to, uh, Games. Remember, we used to be able to go to stadiums and go down outside of Lumen Field. Is that what it's called now? That's not godly. Lumen Field or or T-Mobile Park, even more ungodly, right? And and there's somebody out front with a bullhorn and they're a a, a pla- you know a placard on front and back. And you know, listen to some of the things they're saying. Actually, a lot of the things, probably a lot of the things, the content that they would say. But man, they're just doing it in such an ungracious sort of way. And some of the things they're saying are not godly. And I'm just I'm embarrassed to be a Christian, or you turn on the TV and there's some televangelist guy with like just a ton of product in his hair and he's talking about, you know, if you send in money, God will bless you and like, man, just cringe a little bit and, you know, reading the news of some lady giving all these prophecies about things that are going to come to pass in our day or whatever, just kind of cringe a little bit. I can just be honest with you guys. Tell you the one that hurts the most for me and this, as a pastor in particular, the disgraced public figure pastor. Man, I hate that one. For the last few weeks, we've been inundated, I've been inundated with news articles about a particular pastor. And I don't want to gossip or contribute, he's written publicly about it, and it's kind of a public thing. A, a pastor named Carl Lentz from a church in New York called Hillsong, who a few weeks ago was fired and relieved of leadership duties because of multiple affairs. And you may not know the name Carl Lentz, but he, he's like a, a kind of a big celebrity pastor. He even had like Justin Bieber live with him for a while. Athletes, NBA stars go to this church. It's kind of a big celebrity sort of a church. And then you might be able to say, okay, well, that's just that cool hipster Christianity. Of course, you know, when you're, when you're set up like that and you're celebrities and Justin Bieber and rock stars and all that kind of stuff, of course you're going to fall. But it's not just those pastors, I read an article about him and it referenced, you know, multiple others. There's a, a guy who's like a hardcore homeschooled guy, the, the, one of the pastors for the, I think it's the Duggars, like the 18 kids and counting, multiple affairs, multiple allegations of abuse and wrongdoing. Like, well, maybe we need some like rock solid, you know, suit and tie Baptist types. Well, we're just a few months removed from Jerry Falwell Jr., the, the guy from Liberty University, multiple scandals and affairs and abuses of power. And, and you're like, well, maybe we need like the smart intellectual Christian types, you know, the ones that are really reasoned and man, breaking my heart to read about some of the stuff about Ravi Zacharias that have come out in recent months. It's like everywhere you look, there's no branch of Christianity that seems to be immune from the fallen pastor type of thing. David French, who's a journalist and a lawyer, a strong Christian, he wrote this recently about this phenomenon. He says, it's tempting 
to simply cite Reinhold Niebuhr's famous maxim that the doctrine of original sin is, quote, the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. And from there, we can note that every class of person is susceptible and vulnerable to sin and move on. Public figures are human. We know that human beings are fallen and thus there will always be spectacular falls from grace. Yes, but must they be so frequent? Must they be so constant? And I'll just say a word as well for for me and for other pastors. I get kind of caught in the middle sometimes because I look at other pastors who have these falls from grace, but I also have the privilege, painful privilege of looking at the lives of church members who make a shipwreck of their faith or make decisions or do things like, no, why would you do that? So I can kind of see it from both angles. With all of this, it can be tempting to just give up on the church. Just give up. I remember I was raised in a Christian home and in my teenage years, uh, kind of the, uh, the, the rise of like the Christian alternative music scene. And with that, I remember there was kind of a rise of, hey, we really love Jesus, but we really don't like the church. And I can remember being somewhere around 13 or 14 years old and hearing a song. I don't remember what song it was uh, from someone basically saying, yeah, Jesus is cool. You know, the church can go jump in the lake. I'm like, that's just, man. I remember even as a teenager, I was like, that's kind of dumb. Because a few things. Number one, first of all, uh, we're saved into a family. Like the Bible's crystal clear about that. We are redeemed out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into a kingdom. That's a corporate sort of entity. We're brought into the family of God. We're adopted into his family as sons and, and, and heirs and daughters. And, and so you're, you're part of this collective thing. Secondly, even if you don't become a member and you never attend church and you try to distance yourself, even if you're a follower of Jesus, you're still guilty by association, are you not? Those people out there, if they know that you're a Christian and some Christian does something, even if you don't ever become a member of a church, you're still going to be guilty by association. And number three, most importantly, it sure seems like Jesus likes the church. Classic passage that often gets read at weddings, Ephesians 6. Husbands, love your wives. How? The same way that Christ loved the church and, and gave himself for her to make her holy cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. And he did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. There's a scholar, I read her book over the summer, Cynthia Westfall, and she pointed out how the language in here is very stereotypical um, acts that are associated with women, particularly in the first century. Women would do the laundry. Women would do the bathing of others in their household. And yet here it is, Jesus being uh, portrayed in these actions and these activities of just ultimate tenderness and care and love that men that you could learn some things from the women in your life about how to care for your bride, and it's the way that Jesus cares for his bride. It's tenderness, it's love, it's compassion. So, I kind of went back and forth this week. I, had a, I have a couple of big ideas, and then I thought, well, why do I only have to have one big idea? Why not just have two? So my two big ideas for today are, the church is a giant mess, and the church is loved by Jesus. Now, 
Like I've said before, we are fortunate to not be the first culture, the the first people group to look at the people of God and be like, what in the world is going on? Jeremiah, Jeremiah, our prophet for today, looked at his society. And in verse 26 of chapter 23, he said this. He goes, how long, there's our phrase, how long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? See, what's going on here is Jeremiah is living right at the press of the exile. We've talked about this before, where the people of Judah were taken into exile in Babylon, and he's looking at it about to happen. And what's going on is he's saying, hey, people, the Lord warned our forefathers, if we were not faithful to the covenant, we would be removed from the promised land. But you can read it throughout the book of Jeremiah and elsewhere that all of these other prophets were running around, and they were saying things like, hey, calm down, everybody. It's no thing. It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. It's just Nebuchadnezzar. It's just the Chaldeans. Everybody calm down. And they're prophesying lies. They're prophesying the deceit that comes from his own heart. And he's frustrated. He's frustrated with these prophets. How long are they going to do this? And he's frustrated with widespread ungodliness. Look at verse 9. He says, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. I've become like a drunkard. I'm staggering like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord, because of his holy words. For listen, listen, the land is full everywhere of adulterers. And the land mourns because of the curse. And the grazing lands in the wilderness have dried up. Their way of life has become evil and their power is not rightly used. And then he gives a little explanation. Because... Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Two quick points I want to make. First one is this. We got to look at God's house first. When he says, even in my house, I have found their evil. Yes, there's widespread evil, but even in my house. That's a, that's a point of emphasis. Can you believe it? This is what we're seeing. Friends, quick show of hands. How many of you are frustrated by ungodliness or things that you see more broadly in our society and in our culture? Okay. That's okay. That's totally fair. We have to be more willing to look in the mirror than point fingers. Judgment begins with a household of faith. Before we point fingers at society, the house of God needs to look in the mirror. God's house first. Point number two is simply that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Now, he mentions the prophets and the priest in this verse we just looked at in verse 11. Elsewhere in the chapter, there's mention of kings. Prophet, priest, and king are the three main leadership uh, offices for the people of Israel uh, prior to the coming of Christ. Prophet, priest, and king, they have distinct responsibilities. They all overlap. The king is a little bit more responsible with, you know, defense and justice and administration, all of which has a spiritual component to it, but it's a little more societal. The, the priest is responsible to atone for sin, to make sacrifices, to deal tenderly with the people, to provide care. You'd almost kind of think of it like, you know, hospital visits and pastoral ministry, that kind of stuff. And then the prophet is to declare the truth of the Lord. And all three of them, all three of these rules, prophet, priest, and king, are referred to as shepherds. In this chapter, as well as other places in the Hebrew scriptures, shepherds, 
Prophets have a role to shepherd. Priests have a role to shepherd. Kings have a role to shepherd. Now, it's important to remember that everyone is responsible for their own sin and wrongdoing. In fact, Jeremiah is going to say that exact thing in chapter 31. But leadership matters. Why is there so much widespread ungodliness? Because the prophets and the priests themselves are ungodly. There there is a burden. There's an extra weight. There's an extra responsibility in leadership, is there not? It reminds me of the book of James where, where James says, not many should become teachers because those who are will face a more strict judgment. That's one of those verses that just almost always will send a shiver down the back of my spine as I think about my role of teaching and leading in the church. Now, hear me on this. Some of you have a formal role of leadership. In the church, maybe you, you know, some of you are overseers, some of you are deacons, some of you lead a small group, you have a formal role of leadership. Some of you have a role of leadership as being parents, that's a leadership role, or leadership roles in business, or, or uh, politics, or something. You have, a, you have a leadership role. But might I remind you that every single one of you is called, if you've put your faith in Jesus, is called prophet, priest, and king. First Peter chapter two, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Royal, what's that one? King. Priesthood, which one is that? Priest, good job, Reagan, yes. So that you may proclaim, prophet. That's what prophets do, they proclaim. So all of you, just by virtue, if you have put your faith in Jesus, his death and his resurrection, you are all prophets, priests, and kings. Charged with the responsibility of representing God to the watching world. So we are all prophets, priests, and kings. Yes, someone like me has a more formal role of leadership within the church, but we all should feel some of this weight. And he mentions some of the specific sins of the leaders. I'll summarize them briefly. Verse 13, he says these leaders, they, they, they commit idolatry. We talked about this a few weeks ago in verse 13. It says they prophesy by Baal. So they're, they're serving another God. We, we can sometimes think of idolatry as bowing down in front of a statue, but the fully biblical picture of idolatry is anything that captures our hearts, anything that we love, anything that we value more than we value God. Sexual sin, says the prophets of Jerusalem, commit adultery. Such a common misuse of power and authority, not just in the church, but everywhere, that that it just, it leads to unfaithfulness or even worse, abuse and exploitation at times. There's dishonesty. It says the prophets of Jerusalem walk in lies. The way that the verse reads, like it's almost like it's connected to the adultery, like they're lying to cover up their sexual misdeeds. But then number four gets the bulk of the time in chapter 23. This is the main thing that Jeremiah is frustrated about the leadership. It's false prophecy. Verse 16, for example, says, this is what the Lord of armies says. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They are deluding you. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the Lord's mouth. Try to imagine a religious leader making something up about God. You ever heard like in our society, well, you know, to me, God is, well, how I think of God is, uh, 
Well, the God that I follow would never, you know, Old Testament, not the God that I serve. This takes up the, the rest of the chapter. This is the big thing. Now, let me explain to you why this is such a big deal. And it has to do with the nature of prophecy itself, the nature of what prophecy even is. We sometimes think about prophecy purely that it's, it's prediction. There is a predictive element to biblical prophecy, but prophecy is more about proclamation than it is about prediction. More about proclamation, less about prediction. For the most part, you could almost think about biblical prophecy. It's preaching. It's talking about what God is like. It's talking about how we should serve God. It's talking about ways to please the Lord. Yes, there are predictive elements, particularly those that talk about the coming of the Messiah, how long until the Messiah comes, but it's proclamation over prediction. Something else to be aware of is that there is a difference before and after Pentecost. See, after Pentecost, Jesus came, lived, died, rose, ascended, and then the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh, like the prophet Joel said, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. There's, you know, the old men will dream dreams and the young men will see visions. I think I got that backwards, right? There's this idea that the Holy Spirit is poured out on everybody. Sam Storms, a pastor who I greatly admire, he calls it the democratization of the Holy Spirit, that now after Pentecost, we all have the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? We all can proclaim truth about God. We all can practice prophecy in this regard. Before the coming of the Holy Spirit, it was reserved for a more select few. And those select few, I've really latched onto the language of these last few years, those select few are called to be covenant enforcers. Covenant enforcers. Their job is to go out and speak the truth of God to people in power, to the whole culture, and to say, we must be faithful to the covenant that God made with our forefathers. You know what I'm talking about? That that God, out of a sheer act of grace, he redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt. He, through grace, brought them through the Red Sea. He, through grace, brought them across the Jordan River and into the land. And, And God said, look, I have done all of this as a sheer act of grace for you. Here is how you express loyalty to me. It's the covenant. It's not being saved by works. It's showing God appreciation. But how many of you know the storyline of the Bible is just one heartbreaking failure after another. The people were just not faithful. And it was the job of a prophet to go out into the world before kings and rulers and everybody and say, we're not being faithful to the covenant. Now, question for you. How popular do you think that made the prophets? How, how, how loved were those prophets? Can you see a little bit of motivation for why it might be like, well, maybe I'm just not going to prophesy the, the harder truth. Maybe I want to say something that's a little bit easier, a little bit nicer. I'll, I'll reference a story. I, I referenced it a few weeks ago and I went and read it again. And it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it's kind of funny. There's a, there's a moment in the history of, of, of Israel, northern tribes of Israel, southern tribes of Judah, they've been split up. But there was one time where the, the king of Israel, Ahab, And the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, decided to team up to go fight against this other country. And so they're hanging out together, and the king of Israel says, well, hey, like, before we go into battle, don't you think we should, like, maybe get a prophet and and ask him, you know, inquire what we should do? And and the king of, um, sorry, the king of Judah asked that, and the king of Israel goes, well, there is this one guy, but he never prophesies anything good about me, only disaster, a reputation have, right? His name is Micah. You can read this in 1 Kings 22. It's funny. It's, it's biblical hilarity. 
And, and Jehoshaphat goes, ah, I can go get him. He never says anything good. And, and, uh, and he goes, well, you shouldn't really say that, I guess, but go get him, Ahab. And so he goes and gets him. And, and, and Ahab asks him, he goes, okay, Micaiah, should we go into battle? What's going to happen? And Micaiah responds with, yes, O king, go into battle. You will be victorious. And Ahab goes, he literally goes, how many times must I make you swear to not tell me anything but the truth in the name of the Lord? He's like, I can tell that you're lying to me right now, Micaiah. Like, say the actual truth. And he goes, okay, you want the truth? You're going to die. You're going to get, everything's going to be destroyed from top of the hill to the bottom of the valley and goes on very long and poetically. And Ahab looks over at Jehoshaphat and says, didn't I tell you he never prophesies anything good about me? And then he goes to the soldiers. He goes, well, take Micaiah and put him in prison. Take, it literally says, take this guy and put him in prison and feed him only a little bread and water until I come back safely. Newsflash, he doesn't come back safely. Poor Micaiah. <laughs> like that's his job. That's what the prophet's job is, right? Jeremiah, our prophet for today, is, is beaten and thrown into a well. I mean, just all sorts of terrible things come when you offer the hard truth of God's word because sometimes, oftentimes, the truth of God's word is weighty. Verse 29, we heard this in our scripture reading. Isn't my word like a fire? This is the Lord's declaration. And like a hammer that pulverizes rock? I was just talking with Myung this morning, doing some construction at their house. And you had to, did you use a jackhammer on the concrete, Myung? How, how fun was that? Not fun at all, right? Like I, I've had to do a few concrete projects, like just pulverizing rock. It is not a pleasant experience. And God is saying that his word is at times like that. Therefore, take note, I'm against the prophets. This is the Lord's declaration. They just, they steal my words from each other. I am against the prophets, the Lord's declaration, who use their own tongues to make a declaration. I'm against those who prophesy false dreams, the Lord's declaration, telling them and leading my people astray with their reckless lies. It is not I who sent or commanded them. There are no, they are of no benefit to these people. This is the Lord's declaration. How many of you know? Sometimes the word from the Lord is a hard and painful truth. And I joke about it sometimes. If you can't say amen in church, you can say ouch. But it's the reality. You could see why some of these prophets would want to pull their punches. Friends, you and I, in our day, we might be tempted to pull our punches. We might be tempted to not speak the truth of God in the church context. How much more so in the secular context where people don't like us? This is a hard calling to be a kingdom of royal uh, priests and prophets. There's something in the American church that I have noticed for a long time where we've bought into this lie that if we were just nice enough or if we were just cool enough or if we were just relevant enough, then the world would like us. And while there is no excuse for being a jerk or putting unnecessary stumbling blocks in front of people, there's no excuse for that. Oftentimes, the call to follow Jesus is going to sound pretty intense. Pick up your cross, die to yourself, give up what you want, and follow his way. I mentioned this scandal with this pastor from the East Coast, and there was an article that came out of Spectator magazine. I think that's British. The author, Ben Sixsmith, um, He's, he's, he says he's not a believer. He says it in this article. And I'm not even going to put it up on the screen because it's, it's I want to read you a longer quote from this article. And I want you to ponder what he says. 
I've linked to it up on the website if you want to read the whole thing. He says, I have no doubt that Hillsong, under Lentz's leadership, has enriched thousands of lives. Even young Mr. Bieber has avoided legal controversies and settled down with his wife since joining Hillsong. Good luck to him. Still, it seems to represent what I call the twist of Christianity trend. There's mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, political activism, and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. Most people just stick with the mainstream culture because they can have all those things and premarital sex. We can see the twist of Christianity trend elsewhere. Elsewhere. Jerry Falwell uh, Jr. was representative of the right-wing business-oriented evangelicals who offer capitalist self-enrichment and hubristic jingoism with a twist of Christianity. And there are progressive Christians, of whom Nadia Boltz-Weber is an extreme example, who promote the usual left-wing causes with a twist of Christianity. While different in belief, such people share patterns of thought. Those on the right believe secular individualists mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with money, while those on the left think that secular progressives mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with bodies. So if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, If someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Ouch. problem as old as fallen humanity itself. So where's the hope? Verse 3 of chapter 23. The Lord has said, woe to these shepherds. They've done a bad job. They've scattered my people. They haven't taken care of them. I'm about to deal with you, says in verse 2. So then in verse 3, he says, I will gather the remnant of my flock from all the lands where I've banished them. And I will return my sheep to their grazing land. They will become fruitful and numerous. And I will raise up shepherds over them who will tend to them. God says, I'm going to put in place good shepherds. Good leaders who will actually take care of the people. They, my people, my sheep, will no longer be afraid. They will no longer be discouraged, nor will any of them be missing. This is the Lord's declaration. There's a promise of hope for good leaders to come, but there's more because it all hinges on a specific singular leader. Look. The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch for David. The the metaphor here, the, the working analogy, is that King David 
It's, it's his offspring who are supposed to rule as shepherds, as kings over the people of God. That, that his family line is supposed to be like a great tree, but through ungodliness and, and through covenant failure, that tree has been chopped down. But multiple prover, uh, prophets speak that there's going to be this branch or there's going to be a shoot. Uh, you, you, you might think about that in, in the prophet Isaiah. And here it's this branch for David, a, a new life, a new branch, a new vine is going to grow. And he, this specific righteous branch, will reign wisely as a king. He will administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The hope of Israel, the hope of the people of God is this righteous anointed Messiah, the king who is promised to come. And that's why Christmas is so amazing. Because at Christmas, we see that God cares about his people, the church. He cares about his people, Israel. He cares about those who belong to him. You know what? Um, when you get your kids and you sit in front of the fire, you know, the week of Christmas, let's do a Christmas reading. I am going to bet money that most all of you are going to read from Luke chapter 2 but you should be reading from Matthew chapter one, you bunch of cowards. Matthew chapter one is that long genealogy. Nobody's got the guts to sit their kids down and read that. None of you, not a single one of you put Matthew chapter one, the whole thing on your Christmas card this year. I am, I am ashamed of you. You, you weak cowards, because in the, in the, in the genealogy of Jesus, in that long, well, so-and-so fathered so-and-so, and so-and-so fathered so-and-so, is the hope of the gospel. It's this righteous branch of David promise right there. Because it says in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 16, Jacob fathered Joseph, who's the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the anointed king. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. The exact promise that we just read here, the return from exile, now there's a righteous king. And by the way, you heard David's name mentioned a couple times. Did you know that the number 14 right there is also code for David? When you take his letters of his name, D, V, D, Dalit, Vav, Dalit, they would use numbers for the letters and you add up those numbers and those letters, it adds up to 14. This is not some wacko numerology sort of thing. This is Matthew doing theological numbering to make it crystal, crystal clear. Jesus is the promised descendant of David. And now when he goes out and starts preaching and he says things like, I am the good shepherd, does Jeremiah 23 change your perspective on that? Like, this is not just, I'm the good shepherd in the abstract. He's not just saying, I'm the good shepherd, because, you know, there's lots of shepherds in the ancient Near Eastern world. No, he's, like, so he's saying, I am this good shepherd. I'm the Jeremiah 23 good shepherd. And I, instead of, instead of harming the sheep, I will lay down my life for the sheep. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He went to the cross, taking the punishment that would have been deserved of a false prophet. Do you know that false prophets were given the death penalty? Jesus uttered no falsehood. He only spoke the perfect truth of God, and yet he was crucified like he was a false prophet. And yet Jesus said, in addition to that, he says, I am the true vine. I am the branch. I am 
that new life that springs up. He says, I am the vine. You are also branches. If you get connected to me, you will live forever. And friends, Jesus did not only die the death of a false prophet. He rose from the dead on the third day, confirming that he was in fact the true prophet from God that was promised before, uh, before all of this exile and everything else happened. Friends, Jesus is the hope of the church. Jesus is the hope of us. Jesus is the hope of messy, fallen people who get it wrong time after time after time. Our hope is not in a human being or in an institution. Our hope is in the crucified and risen good shepherd. This is the hope of the gospel. Now, if that is true, if Jesus really is our hope, then we can have hope for the church. We can have hope even in our day when it seems like nobody can get it right, when it seems like corruption is widespread, when it seems like people are teaching that which is of their own imagination and not the truth from God's word. We still, with all of that, I'm not turning a blind eye to any of it, we can have hope, okay? Because Jesus loves his church. Let me share with you five quick thoughts in closing as we, as we see about how we could live this out. Number one, I want to call you to commit to loving the church. Part of what's so frustrating about preaching this message is you're the ones who are here. You're in the room. You're tuned in online. You're participating. You actually at least care enough about the church to be here and to participate. What really breaks my heart is those who have left those who've walked away, those who've had a bad experience with the church and they just said to heck with it all and, and I'm not going to participate at all. It breaks my heart. But friends, you and I need to start with loving the church and remembering we are the church. It's you, it's me. When you trash the church and you speak ill of the church, you're speaking ill of yourself because you are part of it, whether you distance yourself or not. Jesus loves the church. We are called to follow him. Sometimes love looks like a decision that precedes feelings. In our world, we talk a lot about the feelings side of love, and that's, there's validity to that. But sometimes love is making a decision that then leads to feelings. Number two, pray for your church. So, so love the church broadly, you know, quotes the church, but specifically pray for your church. Pray for me, pray for the elders, pray for the deacons, pray for the staff, pray for the community group leaders, pray for our missional effectiveness, pray over those gift cards that you're going to bring back for foster kids. Like just pray a lot because I love our church deeply and I think our church is, is a, a good church and healthy in many ways, but we are far from perfect and the enemy would love nothing more than to bring division or to trip us up or to, to find some sort of weakness. So pray because I can't do this, you can't do this, none of us can do this in our own strength. We need the Lord's protection, his supernatural guidance. Number three, as a church, we have to be willing to be 100% honest. In virtually all of these pastoral scandals where some leader falls, by the way, I really hate the phrase moral failure. It's just it's like such a nice churchy way to kind of clean up adultery. Like cheating at cards is a moral failure also, right? Losing your temper and kicking your dog. You'd never do that, but like that's a moral failure also. Anyway, sorry. That was free of charge. I'll fix that for the five o'clock service tonight. Here's, here's, this is really, um, 
This is really true. When, when you see these scandals, these, these failures, these adulteries, these abuses of power, there's almost always other leaders or other people around who have not been willing to be fully honest. They've seen patterns. They've seen smoke. They've been unwilling to say, hey, there's a fire here. You read about churches where tragic abuse took place in the church, and rather than calling the police or calling the authorities, they said, well, we'll just deal with this in-house. Friends, that cannot be. That cannot be in the household of God. Our only option is transparency and honesty. Our only option is to say, not to say things like, well, you know how he is, you know how she is. Well, it's probably not. No, like we have to be a church that is committed to very real, very true honesty and transparency. It's not just in big celebrity churches too, it's small churches. Number four, I want to, I want to, I want to light a fire under you to dare to hope. Dare to hope. And what I mean by that is dare to hope that maybe the church is not quite as bad as you think. Because remember, one very important factor, people do not sell newspapers and get clicks on websites with articles titled faithful pastor for 40 years retires. Like that doesn't, that does not sell magazines. That does not get you clicks on your website. Nobody gets that email. It's like, oh my gosh, I have to forward this to all my family and friends. Can you believe, can you believe, can, can you believe, he was married to the same woman, always faithful for, can you even believe that? I mean, nowadays, it's harder and harder to believe that, right? Dare to hope that there might actually be some good people out there. There might actually be some people who are doing their darndest. I don't know what the numbers are, but for every one of these big giant scandals you read about, there's dozens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of faithful women and men loving and serving the church, and they're not getting their names in the paper. So dare to hope a little bit. And number five, consider your own witness. Before you think about the church in the abstract, remember prophets, priests, kings called to proclaim the excellencies of him who has brought us out of darkness and into his light. We are the church. We might be a giant mess, but we are loved by the good shepherd who came at Christmas, born to die, that we might be redeemed And as we go to the Lord's table here in a moment, as Pastor Jason leads us, let's remember just how loved we are. Lord, here we are. We are your church. Faults and failures and warts and bruises and everything. Lord, I pray that you would help us personally, individually, to be very honest and transparent, to not make excuses. And even now as we come to the table to know that we can receive your grace, that this, this, this bread and this cup are, are emblems of your deep love for us and your commitment to us even when we have strayed. Jesus, you are the good shepherd. You are the true branch, the true vine. Help us to abide in you and to drink deeply of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.